the Olivet Discourse has given rise to very different interpretations. Broadly, the difference lies in how we understand the Great Tribulation mentioned in Matthew 24, verse 21, Mark 13, 19, and Luke 21, verse 23. Is this Great Tribulation a period of suffering lasting now for some 2,000 years? Or is it a brief time of exceptional world suffering and turmoil shortly before the second coming of Jesus? This writer finds the former of these views simply incredible. In the interest of clarity, I must state that the Great Tribulation, as distinct from tribulation in general, Acts 14, verse 22, and so on, cannot possibly refer to a period of time spanning millennia. Jesus' discourse works out of Daniel, as he says in Matthew 24, verse 15, and Daniel describes the same unprecedented great tribulation as a period of intense suffering in connection with the final king of the north and just before the resurrection. Daniel 12, verses 1 to 2. Revelation likewise speaks of the Great Tribulation as a future period of distress. Revelation 7, verse 14. To disconnect these three references to the Great Tribulation seems to me to be an improper exegetical move. I think that there's a systematic error at work in the view which supposes that Jesus announced the Great Tribulation as the period of suffering initiated by the fall of the temple in AD 70, making the Great Tribulation a continuous period to be ended by the future cosmic signs of Matthew 24, verse 29, and the arrival of Jesus. The most basic of all principles of hermeneutics is that parallel passages, passages marked by the same distinctive key terms, must be connected not disconnected. When Jesus in Matthew 24, 21 cites verbatim the words of Daniel 12, verse 1, and when Jesus in the immediate context stresses his dependence on Daniel, as in Matthew 24, verse 15, Daniel 9, verse 27, and Daniel 11, verse 31, and 12, 11, it appears to me to be an impossible hermeneutical strategy to disconnect Jesus' words about the Great Tribulation from the reference to Daniel 12, verse 1. But this is what historicism has to do. That disconnection strikes me as being rather similar to the preterist technique of positing two completely different parousias, one in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 as a reference to AD 70, and an entirely different event in Paul's writings as the future visible arrival of Jesus to raise the dead. The so-called problem for exegetes has been to try to sort out in the answer of Jesus to his disciples what elements refer to the events of AD 70, if any, and what to the parousia of Jesus in the future. One attempt to solve the problem is to say that the abomination of desolation, which all agree triggers the time of great tribulation, was the presence of Roman soldiers 
in the temple in AD 70. This event, the abomination, would, on this theory, initiate the time of Great Tribulation in AD 70. Matthew clearly states that the appearance of cosmic signs and the arrival of Jesus will follow that Great Tribulation immediately. Matthew 24, verse 29, this all-important time marker immediately after allows for no gap between the end of the Great Tribulation and the arrival of Jesus in glory. If then the abomination of desolation and Great Tribulation describe the invasion of AD 70, then it must follow logically that the Great Tribulation has been unceasing since that date, since the text expressly says that Jesus will arrive immediately after the tribulation of those days. Matthew 24, verse 29, referring to the Great Tribulation, which begins in Matthew 24, verse 21, triggered by the abomination of verse 15. The difficulty of imagining the Great Tribulation as an unbroken period of nearly two millennia, so far, has troubled others, who hold nevertheless to the idea that the abomination appeared in AD 70. The Great Tribulation, they have felt, is rather obviously not an extended period, certainly not thousands of years. How then to fill the gap between AD 70 and the future parousia? This other school has had to posit that the heavenly signs of Matthew 24-29 are a figurative description of the various political upheavals which have characterized the long interval between AD 70 and the present. These heavenly signs will continue so says this opinion, until Jesus appears at his parousia, immediately after the AD 70 tribulation and the centuries-long supposed political disturbances described as they think by the darkening of the sun, and so on. I find entirely unsatisfactory the idea that the heavenly signs are not to be taken literally. It is quite unconvincing that heavenly signs have lasted for nearly 2,000 years. Equally problematic is the extension of the Great Tribulation over that span of time, beginning in AD 70. I propose that if well-established hermeneutical procedures are followed, we will conclude that Jesus spoke of a brief episode of unprecedented worldwide suffering just before the cosmic signs, which are to be taken literally, and his parousia, which will likewise be visible and will lead, as all premillenarians agree, to the established rule of the Messiah on earth on the restored throne of David. Acts 1 verse 6 and Acts 3 verse 21 in the future kingdom of God. I think that Jesus supported what we now call a classical premillennial view of eschatology, but certainly never spoke of any pre-tribulation rapture of the saints, which is a very modern and false idea. 
since the 1830s. Jesus advised flight to the hills by the Christian elect when the abomination was cited. Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. This would make no sense at all if he envisaged a pre-tribulation departure to heaven. Furthermore, the gathering of the elect to be with Christ happens after the tribulation, not before. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. The introduction to the Olivet Discourse, and above all, the question of the disciples to which Jesus responded, are all important as the context to Jesus' discourse. Equally important are the exegetical links to the book of Daniel, to which Jesus directs us expressly. Failure to follow the Master's interpretative instructions in regard to the abomination has been a major factor in confusing Jesus' point of view on the future. The abomination is to be read not out of the history book, but out of the Bible. And this means taking with utmost seriousness the priceless interpretative clues given by Jesus, who said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he, note the masculine participle describing the abomination, and a reference thus to a person, where he ought not to, let the reader understand, Mark 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in a holy place, let the reader understand, Matthew 24, verse 15. It would be a major mistake to cherry-pick the data here and opt for only one of Daniel's references to the abomination, and in fact the least obvious and direct of them, rather than taking in the full range of Danielic reference to the abomination. When Jesus referred to Matthew 24, 15, to the Danielic abomination, he did not say, now I mean the event in Daniel 9, 27, but not the event of 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. But commentators have made a choice to disregard Jesus' verbatim references to 11, 31, and 12, verse 11 of Daniel. They have thus discarded the keys to understanding Jesus' mind on this vital point. The exact phrase to which Jesus referred is in Daniel 12, verse 11, where the angel gives important information about the lapse of time foreseen between the setting up of the abomination in Daniel 11.31 and the completion of all the events. Daniel 12 verse 7, all the events, that is, of those chapters. That's to say, the death of the final king of the north, Daniel 11 verse 45, the tribulation and the resurrection of the dead in Daniel 12 verses 1 to 2. Daniel 11 verse 31 combined with Daniel 12 verse 11 gives us the chronological data which we need in order to place the abomination in the right place in prophecy. The abomination, according to this information, appears some three and a half years before the end of the age. 
This rules out all possibility of its application to AD 70. AD 70 may in retrospect be viewed as some sort of similar event, but certainly not the event described expressly by Jesus or Daniel. J.J. Pasch, in his The Final Words of Jesus, writes, Western hermeneutics misunderstand the end-time prophecy, seeing it merely in terms of prediction and fulfillment. The ancient Jewish concept of prophecy saw it as a pattern being recapitulated. The idea is crucial in understanding the errors of dominionism, as to say the notion that the church is to establish the kingdom before the parousia, and restorationism, a similar view that Christians can take over the world in the absence of the coming Messiah, which argue that the last days are over, wrongly that is, having all happened in a literal sense in AD 70. Though AD 70 saw a destruction of the temple, the pattern of events outlined by Daniel, from which Jesus worked, expects a future and final end-time period of trouble and destruction of the temple, which do not correspond with the events of AD 70. The less direct reference to the abomination is found in Daniel 9, verse 27, and it occurs within the span of the last heptad or seven-year period in that prophecy. The fact that 11.31 and 12.11 have established where the abomination belongs chronologically helps us to read the Daniel 9, verse 27 description of the abomination correctly. It fills the last half of the last seven-year period, thus harmonizing exactly with the time period provided by Daniel 11.31 and 12.11. Daniel 8.13 likewise speaks of, and I quote here, the abomination of rebellion, and the event is connected with a leader who arises from the final form of the Greek Syrian Empire. Daniel 8 is formally a prediction of the time of the end, as we read in Daniel 8, verses 17 and 19, and cannot therefore have been fulfilled in B.C. times. The relegation of Daniel 8 to B.C. times we consider to be a major mistake in the interpretation of prophecy. The time of the end in Daniel and other apocalyptic literature is a well-known phrase for this supreme period of distress preceding the arrival of the kingdom of God in power. Foltz's compendium of Jewish eschatological teachings has collected a mass of information relative to the letzte böse Zeit, the final evil time. For that reference, see Foltz, Jüdische Eschatologie von Daniel bis Akiba, written in 1903. By no means can this describe 
a period lasting centuries or two millennia. The abomination of desolation of Jesus and Daniel will not fit in AD 70. There was no lapse of 1290 days, according to Daniel 12.11, there must be, between the appearance of the abomination in AD 70. I note that interpreters of the so-called historical school differ as to exactly what the abomination was in AD 70 and the coming of Christ in the future. No lapse between those events is called for by the text. Confirmation of this scheme is found in Jesus' reference to the absolutely unprecedented period of extreme suffering in which, if those days were not cut short, no flesh would be saved alive. I cannot believe that a period which God cuts short in view of its extreme agony and to spare the extermination of mankind can refer to 2,000 years. This is rather a distress which threatens to destroy mankind. The Great Tribulation is defined by Mark as, and here I quote, those days in which there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will be. Mark 13 verse 19. In those days it will be distressful in the extreme for those, as Mark says, who are with child and are nursing babies. Mark 13 verse 17. Mark says that those days taken as a whole, not just their initiation, will be days of appalling distress. Such language is strikingly inappropriate for the condition of the world over 2,000 years. The Great Tribulation is hardly fulfilled by the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem by Romans in AD 70, when certainly not all flesh was threatened. Furthermore, God will shorten those days, the days of the Great Tribulation. This can hardly be a description of the condition of the world since AD 70 until the present time. Such conditions have certainly not been ongoing all these years. Jesus promised to return immediately after the tribulation of those days, the days described as times of appalling difficulty. Matthew 24, verse 29. There can be no doubt at all that Jesus was not speaking of a millennia-long tribulation initiated in AD 70. Once again, Jesus' Old Testament references must supply the right understanding. He has been referring to Daniel as he said in Matthew 24, verse 15, and now he cites verbatim a text which likewise describes the time of unparalleled suffering. That text is found in Daniel 12, verse 1. And once again, the period described fits perfectly in the final end of the age events. It's a brief period 
in connection with the resurrection of the dead, Daniel 12, verse 2, which, as the New Testament makes clear, everywhere follows the tribulation and the heavenly sign. Taking seriously the directed links of Jesus to Daniel, we establish the fact that the great tribulation belongs at the very end of the present age. It is that tribulation which Jesus sees as the climax of the present wicked world system to be relieved only by his appearance in power and glory immediately after the tribulation of those days, as we read in Matthew 24, verse 29. The question of the disciples as the logical basis for Jesus' reply. If next we consider the question which prompted this magnificent discourse of Jesus on the events which would signal his second coming, we find our thesis confirmed. All three synoptic gospels, as we know, report the very same discourse. It was given, as all say, on the Mount of Olives, just before the Lord's death. There are minor differences between the accounts. Luke differs in vocabulary from Mark and Matthew at certain points, but the structure and substance of the discourse is given by all three confirming witnesses. This is true, naturally enough, also of the report of the disciples' opening question. Matthew records it like this. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Mark words the same question as follows. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? Luke 21, verses 5 to 7 says this, As some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign when this is about to take place? It would be an extraordinary pulling apart of the information to suppose that only Matthew has included a question about the second coming. As all agree, large sections of Jesus' answer, in all three accounts, describe the second coming. Jesus' answer corresponds beautifully to the question posed. We must therefore reject the suggestion that Luke and Mark omitted any mention of a question relative to the second coming and had only a fall of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 in mind. If Mark and Luke omit a question about the parousia, they certainly do not omit reference in the response of Jesus 
to the parousia. The natural way to read the question, as reported by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is to see it as a question about the fall of the temple in connection with the second coming. All three versions of the question speak of a sign. They seek information about clear evidence of the impending parousia. This, as we know, did not happen in AD 70. Matthew has defined this as a sign of the parousia. Matthew 24, verse 3. The disciples imply that the fall of the temple and the second coming are parts of the same event. Their supposition is based on a common understanding of Daniel's prophecy. It was Daniel who spoke of the abomination and the great tribulation as contained within the last 1290 days of the present age. You'll find that in Daniel 11, verse 31, and Daniel 12, verses 7 to 11. Jesus does nothing at all to disturb the disciples' assumption. Nowhere in the discourse does he indicate a huge lapse of time between the fall of the temple and his appearance in glory at his parousia. The attempts of expositors to create a break in Jesus' reply have failed. There's no agreement as to where that break should be. The fact is that there is no such break. Jesus concentrates on his parousia and the events immediately preceding it. The events of AD 70 obviously do not, as we now know, provide any kind of indication of an impending parousia. Unless the Great Tribulation is an identifiable period of time rather than just a statement about trouble over 2,000 years, Jesus will have given no certain sign that the parousia is near. Historicism thus deprives the Olive Discourse of any meaning in terms of a definite warning that the Second Coming is close. From a historicist's point of view, if the Great Tribulation had been in progress since AD 70, any point of time in the past 2,000 years could be taken as evidence of the immediate arrival of Jesus. Thus, a sign of his coming would be no sign at all, and the prophecy would be emptied of its whole point. It is in harmony with the united testimony of the whole discourse and its introductory question that the same question was implied by all three accounts. This means that when Mark and Luke record the question, what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished, as we read in Mark, and what will be the sign when all this is about to take place, as we read in Luke, they are simply providing a variant on Matthew's what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. The question, therefore, when will all these things be accomplished, 
is a question about the final fulfillment of prophecy. The words are cited, in fact, almost verbatim from Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, where, as we've seen, the data about the abomination is also found, as in Daniel 12, verse 11, and compare with that Daniel 11, verse 31. Daniel's all these things are to be fulfilled is echoed exactly in the words of Mark, showing that the question about all these things being fulfilled in Mark 13 verse 4 is a question not about AD 70, as it turns out, but about the end of the age and the parousia, just as Matthew says. In Matthew 24, verse 3, I note that we should examine for a full examination of the dependence of the Olivet Discourse on the words of Daniel, Lars Hartmann's book, Prophecy Interpreted, written in 1960. It's a mistake to charge the disciples with ignorance or misunderstanding unless the text does this. The question, therefore, as also their final question about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel in Acts 1.6, was a well-informed question, which is nowhere corrected by Jesus. Thus, the question assumes that the fall of the temple will accompany the events of the second coming. There's no separation of these events, by millennia. The reason for this is that in Daniel there was no such chronological separation. Daniel 11 verse 31 and Daniel 12 verse 11 had spoken of trouble in the temple in close connection with the great tribulation and the resurrection. This general outline was known to the inner circle of disciples and there's no hint of such separation in the answer as Jesus constructed it. Attempts by expositors to find a separation in the interest of applying the prophecy fully or partially to AD 70 show extraordinary confusion and disagreement, suggesting that the method is flawed. AD 70 may certainly be seen as a type of end-time events, allowing for a final recapitulation just before the parousia. Prior to his final sermon and leading up to the discourse, Jesus had already turned his mind to his reappearance at the parousia. He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house has left you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's in Matthew chapter 23, 
verses 37 to 39. Jesus here gives a quotation from Psalm 118, which foresees a remnant of Jews welcoming him at his future return. The mind of the Messiah stretches forward to the parousia. It should be carefully noted that Jesus speaks of the actual persons standing before him as the you who will welcome him at this return in the future. A similar all-embracing form of language is found in Matthew 23, verse 35, where Jesus said that you, the Pharisees, the ones alive in Jesus' day, had murdered a prophet who died many years before those Pharisees had been born. How can this be? Simply because the Hebrew mind grasps a totality, and the Messiah is able to speak of his contemporaries as still living long after, as it now turns out, they themselves have died. The you is corporate and not confined to the men standing in Jesus' presence. His mind extends itself to include Pharisees or their equivalent, who would appear much later. It may, of course, be that Jesus did not know the length of time to elapse before the parousia, but there are hints that it would be after a long time. Matthew 25, verse 19. The point is not significant as to the exact limitations of Jesus' knowledge of chronology. He is able to address persons and things present before his eyes as though they would still be extant just before the second coming. There's also the famous saying, all this will come upon this generation. Matthew 23, verse 36. It's essential that the word generation be taken in the light of his later parallel statement in Matthew 24, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The all these things has included a detailed description of the Great Tribulation, the heavenly signs, and the parousia. If by generation is meant period of 40 years, Jesus was clearly mistaken. But he was not. By generation is meant in this context the present evil brood of humanity Humanity that is organized in opposition to God until the parousia, when society will be radically changed. Jesus' statement that all the catastrophes predicted would come on this generation is no proof at all that he meant to predict events only until the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is true that there was a destruction of the temple in that year, but the final events of the present evil age did not happen then, and I say that against the idea of partial preterism. The prophecy is not exhausted 
since Jesus went on to speak of a desolation of the temple and great tribulation followed immediately by his parousia. Matthew 24, verse 29. The parousia obviously did not occur immediately after the tribulation of AD 70. It follows that the abomination and tribulation in Jesus' prophetic forecast lie yet in the future. Extending the Great Tribulation to cover the events of world history or Jewish history for 2,000 years, we do not accept as a reasonable solution. The logic of the discourse, with its essential roots in Daniel, requires a future Great Tribulation, heavenly signs, and parousia. There's a further difficulty in supposing that Jesus was speaking of the A.D. 70 events. In Luke 21, verse 28 and 31, Jesus said, When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. It would be impossible to exclude from these things Jerusalem surrounded by armies and its desolation of verse 20 mentioned in the immediate context. If that desolation pertains only to AD 70, it could not possibly be a sign of the near approach of the kingdom of God. Thus again, the mind of Jesus is directed to the final events of this age. The whole discourse is a response to a question about the end of the age. A single event and a prophecy of the world events which will signal the arrival of the kingdom. Events in AD 70 did not, as it turns out, signal the arrival of the parousia. Similarly, in Matthew 24, the predictions related to the abomination of desolation are seen as a single complex of events which will indicate that the parousia is about to happen. At the end of his prediction, Jesus announces, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the doors. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass before all these things take place. That's Matthew 24, verse 33 and 34. It is perhaps understandable that preterism, that's the view that Jesus came back in AD 70, insists on the basis of the word generation that the discourse does not extend beyond AD 70. However, in Acts 1, verse 7, Jesus gives no indication of how long it will be until the parousia. It would be most odd for him to have said the parousia will happen within 40 years and then to deny later that the disciples were to know anything of the times and seasons. A perfectly satisfactory solution 
to the problem of the generation is found in the meaning of yene'a as a description of the whole wicked inter-advent period. Yene'a in this passage does not mean race, but rather age or extended period of time, and it denotes society as organized against God during the period before the parousia. Yenea is found in the Septuagint as equivalent to the Hebrew word dor, which means age. A similar idea is found in Proverbs 30, verses 11 to 14, where we find that a kind of human being, a collection of individuals united by a common wicked character, are described. Thus also in Luke 16, verse 8, the sons of this age, Aeon, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, Yenea, than the sons of light, as to say the sons of the future age of the kingdom. Here, Yenea means a particular brood of evil people sharing a common evil quality. Thus, Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 34, declares in effect, this present age of society will not come to an end until all the events I've described have taken place. To insist on Yenea as meaning strictly 40 or 70 years turns Jesus into a preterist with the impossible idea that the resurrection of the dead happened in AD 70, and thus Jesus would be a false prophet, or hopelessly confused, when he announced in Acts 1-7 that the times and seasons which must elapse before the parousia were not revealed. Many exegetes have noticed that in the New Testament, yenea can have the sense of age or indefinite period of time. This quotation is from the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church, written in 1916. Yenea expresses the idea of kinship, those of the same lineage, who are born about the same time, or more generally, an age or lengthened period of time. Finally, the word is used, as often in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 and 20, Psalm 12, verse 7, Psalm 24, verse 6, and so on, with a moral connection, as in Philippians 2, verse 15, and Acts 2, verse 40. In the latter passage, the word has an eschatological coloring. This crooked generation is the present, swiftly transient period of the world's history, which is leading up to the day of judgment and the new age. I refer here also to an article, This Generation, Matthew 24, verse 34, a literary critical perspective in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society of September 1996. That Yenea, rendered generation, does express the current age, of the world period 
is obvious in the Gospels. Luke 16 verse 8, Matthew 24 verse 34, and less clearly in Matthew 23 verse 36. That's a quotation from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, written in 1917. Note also the sensible comment of Cranfield. He points out that yenea renders the Hebrew word dor, meaning seed, family, and people. He says this, Probably here, whoever is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, Mark 8, verse 38, generation here means age, period of time, which is the primary meaning of the Hebrew dor, the word it most often represents in the Septuagint, and the possible meaning of yeniah. The whole phrase, this generation, is contrasted with when he shall come with his holy angels, and so is roughly equivalent to in this time. See chapter 10, verse 30 of Mark, which is contrasted with in the coming age. The time meant is the time before the parousia, but it is not thought of simply as a period of time, the thought of the men living in it and of their character is also present and prominent. Hence the adjectives adulterous and sinful. That's from the Gospel of Mark by Cranfield, written in 1972. Note also Psalm 102 verse 18 where we read, this will be written for the Yeneah to come, that a people who will be created may praise the Lord. This contrasts the present time with the generation to come, millennial, in this passage. There's also Psalms of Solomon.